This is Self Work, and I'm Dr. Margaret Rutherford. At Self Work, we'll discuss psychological and emotional issues common in today's world and what to do about them. I'm Dr. Margaret, and Self Work is a podcast dedicated to you taking just a few minutes today for your own self work. Hello, welcome or welcome back to Self Work. I'm so glad you decided to join me. I'm a clinical psychologist in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and about a year ago, I decided to extend the walls of my practice to reach out to people about what I talk every day with my patients about, the very diverse topics that they bring in, anxiety, depression, relationship issues, all kinds of things. Maybe you've been in therapy or are in therapy, and self-work can act as an addition to your own counseling or your own understanding of yourself. Or perhaps you've never even considered therapy. So, welcome to Self-Work. Today's topic is narcissism. We're going to talk about the definition, actually, of narcissism and narcissistic personality disorder. We'll mention a little bit about healthy narcissism, what can look like narcissism but may not be. And the major focus today will be on the five things you can take responsibility for that will help you be in a relationship with someone with narcissism. We'll talk about different techniques that narcissists typically use to keep people in their place that they're in relationship with, such as gaslighting. And after we've talked about that, I'm going to read, as I do every week, an email from a listener. And by the way, I love getting those emails. Thanks so much for asking your questions. This woman who is adopted is trying to establish boundaries with a mother who has borderline personality disorder. Borderline personality disorder has some similarities with narcissism, but they are two distinct, different diagnoses, at least, in the psychological world. If you're in a relationship with someone who has what's called BPD or borderline or narcissism, those relationships can be very difficult. And I hope the suggestions today will help. There have been a lot of articles recently about narcissism. In fact, I've been a little concerned that it's the diagnosis of the year or the decade. The same thing happened with borderline personality disorder in the 90s and bipolar disorder in the first decade of the 21st century. It's kind of like everyone was talking about it as if everyone had the diagnosis, and they don't. We'll talk about that in a minute. So what is actual narcissism? It looks like a terribly inflated ego or sense of importance. These are people who let the world believe that that world should revolve around them. They're people who can be in one moment all about you, and then they disappear. They can emotionally cut you off because they no longer see you as useful or important to them. I've used an analogy of a spotlight being on you in the theater, and that's when you're standing with the narcissist and the spotlight follows you wherever you go. But when the narcissist leaves, the spotlight leaves with him or her, and you're left totally in the dark. Narcissistic folks can be very impatient and very critical but in a subtle and manipulative way. They lack empathy, and they'll blame you for problems. They're the kind of people that believe if you're not totally with them, you're against them. 
So there are a lot of threats to end the relationship, or there certainly can be, not all the time, because you're not devotedly agreeing with everything they say. Now, what's tricky about this is there's massive insecurity underneath narcissism. And of course, that's where the problem lies, because that insecurity has to be covered up. Now, when this is a persistent way of interacting with others, meaning you don't just treat certain people this way, you treat really everyone in your life this way, it's termed narcissistic personality disorder. More men have it than women. We don't know why. But statistically, we know that. But as I said in the beginning of the podcast, I've been a little concerned about how narcissism is getting generalized. Not all jerks are narcissists. Sometimes they're just jerks. They may share some narcissistic traits. But again, to be considered a true personality disorder, the person has to treat most everybody, like we talked about in the definition. So what are the other things it could be? It could be narcissism, for sure. He could be sociopathic. People who truly lack a conscience. He hurts others because he can hurt others. The rules do not apply to him, and he doesn't really care. So certainly a lack of empathy for others would be a trait for both sociopathy and narcissism, but they're not exactly the same. There are a lot of narcissistic behaviors in being an addict, an alcoholic, or any other kind of addict. Addicts don't take responsibility for their actions. They're very blaming, very demanding, or they can be very demanding. Sometimes someone in your life is simply so governed by a substance that he or she looks kind of narcissistic. They'll defend their use of meth or cocaine or pot or alcohol or gambling or sex and even tell you it's your fault that they do it. One of the things that could also be present is that his behavior could be learned. Maybe he saw his father treat his mother very cruelly. He may have been abused himself. He was taught it was okay to demean women and has a rigid belief in a real male-dominated authoritarian culture. That's not, from my perspective, specifically narcissism, although, again, it can share some traits. And then the last thing that it could possibly be is depression. Depression can be converted by many men into agitation and anger. Now, let me make something very clear. Abuse is still abuse, no matter what the reason, whether it's based in narcissism or whether it's learned or whether it comes out of depression or addiction. But the issue, of course, is whatever these problems are, the person themselves has to accept that he has a problem. That's not likely to happen with true narcissism or certainly not sociopathy. It's more likely to happen if the person is depressed or realizes the impact of his own abuse or even certainly addictions can be confronted. But if you love or have loved someone with narcissistic personality disorder or just narcissistic traits, the answer is to disengage from the battle that is more likely been raging between the two of you. Perhaps more of a quiet battle on your part, but it's still ongoing. You have to detach. You have to realize it's not likely you're going to win that battle. So what do you do if you love or have loved a narcissist, 
perhaps you're in relationship with someone with narcissistic traits, or perhaps he's an ex, or perhaps he's a parent, or she. So I have five very basic things to talk about. First, don't get stuck arguing with him about how you're a good person and that you want to love him well or that you did love him well. You've got to detach and disengage and talk with him in a much more rational, objective manner rather than letting your emotions get the best of you. I remember very well a relationship I was in for many years where there were a lot of narcissistic traits. And he would say to me, you better stick with me because if someone really knew the way you were, mm, that would be bad. You wouldn't be loved. And of course, I fought with him about that. When it was all over, I realized that I had to work on my own self-esteem. You know, I've used the analogy with patience of a planet with satellites The narcissist is the planet, and you're the satellite. You need to orbit around him. But to do so means you have to take a secondary or inferior position. He'll criticize your friends or family and try to isolate you from them, so you're actually more dependent on him, at least emotionally. My particular narcissist hated my family and hated the fact that I was close to them and would often criticize that relationship. It wasn't a perfect relationship, but they loved me, and he didn't like that. So what you have to have are boundaries, especially if you're in an ongoing relationship with a narcissist. What's a boundary? It means you outline a limit, and you express that limit to the other person. For example, we're not going to talk about whether I'm a good person or not, I'm not going to have that conversation with you anymore or what you'll do for him and what you won't do for him. You stay aware of the process of communication and don't get swept up in the content. So you have to use your mind to do that. You have to stay more objective because if you get swept up in content, you're lost. Now, this is a lot easier said than done. So you have to practice You can even say it out loud. You can practice in your car. You can write it down. What am I going to say when he says this or that? Give yourself a break if you don't do it perfectly. The second thing that someone who's loved or in love with a narcissist can do is to confront how you've been demeaned. You have to challenge the words he's called you. There's a term called gaslighting that's very common in narcissism. And what that means, it's a tactic which a person, in order to gain more power, makes a victim question their reality. And it can work really very well. It's a very common technique, not only of narcissists, but abusers, dictators, cult leaders. It's done very slowly, like you're almost groomed as in sexual abuse. So the person who's being gaslighted doesn't realize how much they're almost being brainwashed. They'll out and out lie to you and then try to convince you that your reality just isn't correct. They'll say things like, you know, I don't know how you can feel that way. I don't remember it that way at all. Or, you know, the kids see it more my way. They won't tell you because they don't want to upset you. So the third realization you can have 
is you've got to take responsibility for being attracted to the narcissist's initial charm. There's one author that talks about a narcissist love bombing. And what he means by that is an over-the-top attention that you first received. Really, you can't quite believe that this person thinks you're so incredible and special. You were swept up in it all. It's often really possessiveness, but you don't see it that way. You don't see warning signs that were more than likely there. It was too much, too soon. But perhaps because of your own shaky sense of worth, or you were tired of being alone, you soaked it up like rain in a desert. That doesn't make you a bad person, but that did make you susceptible to someone coming along and taking advantage of your own vulnerability. So if you recognize that you're part of that initial dynamic, it's more probable you'll be able to detach from what keeps you stuck. You'll be able to work on your own self-esteem so that when he begins to argue with you about things, gaslight you, criticize you, try to isolate you, whatever technique he uses, you can be more sure of yourself. This fourth one, I think, is very prominent in a lot of relationships with a narcissist. You have to realize how your strengths are manipulated. A narcissist will seek out partners who pride themselves on taking a lot of responsibility, who are very conscientious and work very hard to please. In fact, they're probably what we call pleasers. And they'll love someone even to the point of denying how abusive things are. So, for example, if someone says that you're not remembering things correctly or you're not viewing things realistically, you can say, you know, I know he's right. I I do get confused and I forget sometimes. You can obsess about whatever your vulnerabilities are and begin to think they define you because he will tell you they do. (laughs) He may use that you are trying to live your life with a lot of integrity and take responsibility for maybe mistakes you make or things you regret, but he will drive those home as if those are the things that are most prominent in your personality. And the last thing that hopefully will help you with those boundaries, know that the narcissist will likely always blame you. He will let others know just how horrible you are. There will be no healthy closure in a relationship with a true narcissist. And that feels awful because you see and hear other people being able to do that, maybe to break up or divorce or resolve a conflict by realizing, you know, there are two perspectives here and both need to be honored and respected. That is not going to happen with someone with true narcissism. So you have to heal all by yourself. It can also be difficult, and you can walk around yearning for that emotional closure for years, but it's not going to happen. Not because of you, but because of the vast underlying insecurity of the person with narcissism. So hopefully these five commitments or things to recognize will help you if you stay in the relationship. Now realize that if you do begin using these, you establish boundaries, you don't accept gaslighting, that the narcissist will 
escalate his behavior. If you do, you have to be prepared for that. But if you leave, things will also likely get worse, for a while at least. His rage at being called on the carpet will likely boil over, and he will very quickly get in another relationship, one that will feed that insecurity and feed his grandiosity. So you have to fight sometimes feelings of being replaced. Realize, too, if the relationship ends, that when it was good, it was very good, that love bombing thing. So you have something to grieve. If there are children involved, it's particularly painful. You are likely to watch them go through a very similar process where they begin to realize that their narcissistic parent is unwilling or incapable of providing what they need because the relationship will be about the narcissistic parent. It's very difficult to watch. So you can provide intervention for your child or just steady and consistent support and hope that things will get better with time. Whether you stay or go, you have options. But it's going to be hard. And please get some support. There's a really good book that I'll have the link to in my show notes called Disarming the Narcissist. And that book goes even further into these kinds of techniques that might be helpful to you. So here's my email from a listener today, and it's from a fellow therapist, which I'm delighted. I've heard from several counselors that are listening to self-work, and she says, Hi, I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've been listening to your podcasts for some time now. I find them an excellent way reviewing things that I perhaps not used in a while, but also to introduce new ways to think about how I also treat clients. So thank you. I'm writing, however, about my own situation. I've spent many years attending therapy to learn to cope and resolve the situation with my parents. I was adopted at four months of age by a couple who could not have children, and I was their only child. I was doted on as a preschooler. My mother would dress me in little dresses that made me look more like a doll than a child. But as I grew, and particularly as I grew into my own strong-willed personality, she began to withdraw and criticize me at the same time. And then in parenthesis, she writes, this was a particularly biological trait as I've met my birth families and I'm so similar to them. Back to her letter. My mother had a long history of trauma. She herself was adopted at age five and probably had what's called a reactive attachment disorder from a traumatic family in which she experienced physical abuse and later sexual abuse. My father's extramarital affair led her to multiple suicide attempts. And I certainly experienced trauma myself with her threatening suicide on multiple occasions. I feel as though my adopted parents adopted me to look like the perfect family. But when reality set in, they both did the dash. I moved out at the age of 17. I have tried to stay in touch with her over the years. The one thing that I still struggle with is how to have a relationship with her while maintaining my boundaries. I believe now she has borderline personality disorder, the dependent save me type. Whenever we're in contact, I feel angry. But whenever we're not in contact, I feel bad that she's now in her 70s without a partner and without any family around her. Even her friends have all backed away because she has a knack of sucking the emotional life out of people. She's too emotionally needy. I'm a mother, but I now know that I will never have a mother myself. 
Again, this is similar to what we talked about with the lack of closure on these types of relationships. These people with severe personality disorders are not going to take their share of the responsibility. But back to her letter. My question is this. Do you have any suggestions about how I can maintain boundaries and remain in contact? I live far away from her, which helps to some degree, but it's also amazing how our emotional baggage follows us. Thank you kindly and keep up the good work. This is such a problem that I actually did an episode. It's episode 11 on when you have an emotionally abusive parent. So you might want to tune into that if you find yourself in this email. There are many people that do. Here's my answer. I'm always so pleased when another therapist lets me know they listen to self-work. Thank you so very much. I'm honored. It certainly sounds as if your childhood was tough, full of subtle or not so subtle ridicule for becoming your own person. Your mother sounds very injured by her own family, and you have compassion for that. And she may be incapable of being any kind of healthy or fair parent. You don't mention your dad. Perhaps he's more supportive or perhaps he stood by and did nothing. So there are emotions there as well. You say you've met your birth family and I hope that has been a positive and healing experience for you. I know it takes a lot of courage to do that. As far as maintaining boundaries with someone with borderline personality disorder, that's very difficult as I'm sure you know personally as well as professionally. The best book I know is Understanding the Borderline Mother And there is a link to the audiobook of that in the show notes, and I give that to her as well. She outlines the different categories of borderline personality very specifically and thoroughly, focuses on what happens frequently with the children of those with BPD, and then talks about how to be in a relationship with them without getting swept up in the borderline's emotional world. It takes extremely consistent boundary setting and has its own ups and downs. But one thing did cross my mind as I read your email, your guilt. I had a supervisor one time who said, guilt or shame is a healthy emotion if it lasts for 10 seconds and leads to a change of behavior. That change is not necessarily seeing your mother more. It could be releasing your own guilt. I'd suggest reading the book and trying your hand at establishing new boundaries, realizing the difficulty of that feat. I wonder how much sadness there is under the guilt. That's a lot of years to feel unloved. Again, this is about the whole idea of emotional closure or someone with borderline or narcissistic personality disorder being able to have a conversation with you and acknowledging their part in the conflict or the problem in your relationship. It's highly unlikely they'll be able to do it with severe borderline or severe narcissism. They simply don't have the capacity It's not that they're withholding it. They do not have the capacity. So you have to decide what you're going to do if that's not possible. Grieve it and continue in relationship with them or end that relationship. That's a difficult decision, but one many people have to make. I want to thank you so much for being a part of self-work. You can reach out to me in a whole bunch of different ways. My website is drmargaretrutherford.com, and if you subscribe, you'll actually get my weekly blog post as well as this podcast in a newsletter. A lot of people find that handy. 
So I hope perhaps you'll become a subscriber. All you have to do is go to the website and put in your email. You can also email me at AskDrMargaret at DrMargaretRutherford.com. I love to get your emails. I love to know who you are. I, I know where you live. And by the way, New York, I've got a lot more listeners in New York. That's great. Thanks so much. So I love to know a little bit about you, ideas for different podcasts. And I really appreciate those people who have reached out to me. It's confidential, by the way. And I certainly won't use your name or the actual facts of your life if I feature your email. You can hop on over to my Facebook page. There I do post blog posts, as well as other things that I find interesting in what's going on in our world today as far as mental health or mental illness is concerned, and sometimes just something I find funny. I would love it, of course, if you would leave a rating or review. Several of you have done that recently, and I'm very grateful. What that does is it keeps me in one of the top spots on iTunes when someone looks up podcast on depression or podcast on anxiety or whatever, where more and more people may be attracted to self-work. I could use your help there. Or just tell your friends, hey, I found this podcast I'm really enjoying. You ought to give it a try. So thank you for joining me today. I hope that it's been helpful. Take very good care. I'm Dr. Margaret, and you've been listening to Self Work.